0: All right, so you can go ahead and turn or go on your device to 1 Corinthians, chapter six. As you're doing that, want to start off with a, a story, uh, and this happened last spring. So it was during my son's baseball season. Uh, we had just finished one of his games, and I took him and his older his oldest sister out to to get some dinner. And so we were just going to enjoy ourselves, uh, have a good time, you know, and and have some cheap tacos, do whatever. And so just when I'm out with my kids, and I, it's probably the same for other people, moms and dads, uh, and now, you know, a lot of grandparents too, it's, it's the same. You, you kind of go into this mode where you're just aware, a little more hyper-aware than you probably would be if you were just by yourself. And so for me, what that looks like is I enter a restaurant like Jason Bourne. Um, so, like, I go in, I am, like, spatially, visually aware, I know how fast I can run full speed for a quarter mile at this altitude, like, I'm assessing individuals and contingency plans for different things, that is what I'm doing, I'm very attuned, my hearing is attuned as well, and so I'm paying attention to conversations and sounds and all the things. And it just so happened that where we were seated uh, this night, the booth behind us was the, the party booth that every restaurant has. You know the one I'm talking about? Like you can cram 40 in if you want to. Uh, and this night there were eight or 10 college girls at that booth and um, I don't, my kids weren't aware. They didn't know what was happening, but I could not help but be attuned to this conversation. Because I'm just trying to enjoy my chips and salsa and, you know, talk to Ben about the baseball game, talk to my daughter, Nora, um, which realistically is more like answering 20 questions a minute because that is her spiritual gift. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And so love it. Um, and so we're trying to do that. But the conversation behind me, just it really catches me off guard. And it, and it takes a lot for me to be surprised by pretty much anything like that. But the, these girls were talking about previous sexual encounters that they'd had. Some recent, some not so recent, but beyond that, it went into, well, here's some graphic detail, and what I would, I would say were like dares or challenges um, from, from one girl to another, like, you could do this, or what about that, and... And I just, I sat there and just, I listened. And by this time, we'd already gone through a book of the body and sex with the oldest two kids. So I wasn't super concerned, you know, even if they heard like a certain word. But as it turns out, these girls were not using the words that we had used uh, in our at-home curriculum. So I, it wasn't really like a thread. Nobody, they weren't like phased or anything. They had no idea. They're sitting here now. They're like, no clue, right? Um, and yet they're having this conversation. And I started thinking and going through this um, this progression of feelings and emotions. And I just want to walk you through what I went through in those, in those moments. The first thing I felt was outrage. Like, don't these young ladies realize that they're in public, that there should be some sense of shame, you know, to just verbalize these things in open? And I've got my kids. Like, you've got to look around the restaurant, and pay attention. There are other kids. There were 12. I counted. Like, they're there. And so I was just angry at that. I just want tacos and subpar service. You know, I don't need... I don't need the anatomy stuff. So then I went from outrage to judgment, which for me sounds something like this. My judgment was, you know why these girls are talking like this? It's because they don't have good relationships with their parents. Instead of talking about all of this, this need for validation and acceptance and approval, what they need to do is go cry with their mama or hug their dad. Like that was, because our judgments are always oversimplified, aren't they? For we're just being honest. and so I'm like, that's the solution. I'm like, you give me their numbers, I will call them right now or someone. Who cares? Um, So I went from there. And then I went to empathy because I remember what it was like to be in college, be away from home, making your own decisions. You got pressures. You're attracted to people. You've got all this stuff going on and you've got a lot of freedom, maybe for the first time. And if you've not been trained how to use freedom, it can go very badly. And so I just empathized and thought, man, I know what that's like to even go against some convictions that you've held very strongly for a long time. And so then I moved on uh, ultimately, I got to sadness because I started thinking about these, these women five, 10, 15 years down the road. And, and you know, you, you fast forward out, and chances are most of them are married. Maybe some are having kids. And knowing from my own experience in the lives of those people that I've talked to over the years that the, the marks are probably not going to show up on their body necessarily from the decisions they're making, they, they might but their souls will bear a mark. And so as we start having conversations like this, as we listen to the experiences that people have had, what Matt said last week becomes very evident, that there is sexual brokenness all around. And that there is not a single person here whose life has not been impacted some way by the devastation of sex being used in the wrong way. Whether that was a decision you made personally Or someone made a decision that affected you directly or indirectly, and you know what that looks like, and you know what it feels like. And so one of the reasons I keep coming back to Scripture over and over again, even when the world would say, listen, that's just old, it's ancient, it's no good, the reason I will come back to it is because God does not shy away from the hard topics. God does not shy away from talking about sex. God invented sex. He's the one that thought it up. I heard one pastor jokingly say that our our English translation of be fruitful and multiply is of the original Hebrew, bow chicka wow. Like, it's just, like, God was like, man, woman, marriage, good, go. Like, it is blessed, and it is nothing, it's nothing to be ashamed of, it is to be celebrated, but we know that very quickly in the story, sin enters in, and the first response of Adam and Eve is what? shame cover the body hide from god hide from one another and that continues to be what we see happening we've seen it throughout scripture thereafter there's example after example of brokenness in the form of adultery polygamy voyeurism homosexuality lust rape incest prostitution and on it goes that's all in the bible and it all came from something really really good And so today's text in 1 Corinthians is crucial because the cultural slogans or mantras of Paul's day have come back in vogue. They are just as popular now as they were then in the first century. And Paul is actually gonna take what I think is a surprising approach of how to talk about sex. He's not just gonna talk straight up about sex, but the body. And so that's how he's gonna redirect and connect this for us. So if you look at chapter six, verse 12, here are the first, the first slogan of the day, and he repeats it twice. Paul says, and this is really the Corinthians, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. So I've got freedom, I've got liberty. This is my right. And they're no longer inalienable rights because the government actually is the one who's saying now, you have this right. The government has to say you've got the rights to do this or that. And so the Corinthians are no different than the other ancient people who place autonomy and individual freedom on a very high level. And so they're trying to bring this in to the Christian faith, including their sexual practices. Now, quickly, let's just address the, the Corinthian elephant in the room. The fact is Paul is primarily writing to men in Corinth at this point. It's not that women aren't hearing, it's not that they're not reading this, but we know that he's writing primarily to men because of the culture and the way it prioritized men in every way, which really is what makes a lot of Paul's teaching about women quite progressive in the good way, in a good sense of the word. But men have every advantage in that day, educationally, economically, socially, sexually. This is what one historian says. He said, the sexual attitude allowed to men by Greek public opinion was virtually unrestricted sexual relations of males with both boys and harlots were generally tolerated. And we know from last week's text that there were men in Corinth who would come to follow Jesus now, and, and Paul says, you were sexually immoral. You were those who were practicing homosexuality. You were committing adultery. And so it's still in the air there. But notice the reasons that Paul gives. He, here's why freedom is not just this like, you know, pass, go, you know, carte blanche, do whatever you want to do. He says, yes, you've got the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything's beneficial. And you know this from experience. Like it is within your legal rights to smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. Go do it. You can do that. It is within your legal right to have a a Big Mac and McFlurry every single day for lunch. And you can top it off with a hot cinnamon pie or whatever it is. But you know it's not beneficial. And that's what Paul, he's very practically going, look, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's good for you. And in fact, it's not that it's not just good for you, it's not good for your communities. Because the only other times that Paul uses this word beneficial, it's actually relationally, it's in community with one another. And so we're going to see how Christian freedom is always in service to those around us. It seeks the good. And this pertains to sex and sexuality as well. One of the illustrations I heard about this, I mean, decades ago, um, was thinking of sex as a fire. And so, like within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, that is the container, that is the fireplace, that is where the fire can be stoked and burn bright and be hot, and you can roast marshmallows and do whatever. But you get the fire outside of the container where it's not meant to be, where God never intended it to go, and it is not just going to do damage to those people but to others around them. And there is collateral damage left in the wake of sexual immorality. And so that is what Paul is getting at, that we have these individual and communal responsibilities and we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. So Paul says not everything's beneficial and then the second time he says, okay, I've got, you've got the right to do anything but I will not be mastered or dominated by anything. So the idea was you can just like swipe the credit card as much as you want and you never have to pay it off you know, when it comes to pleasure and sex, and Paul is, no, 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 you are paying a price, you just may not realize it. Because what's happening is you are in effect becoming mastered by your desires. Because the more that you say yes to something, the more that you give in to an appetite or desire over time, the less likely you are to be able to say no when it matters the most, or when you finally want to stop. And we know this is happening. We, science is affirming everything that scripture is saying because we know that our brains are firing and wiring based off the decisions we're making. There are chemicals in our body from serotonin to oxytocin to whatever that are, that are firing to say yes, 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 more, more, more. It's so why I think Paul is brilliant. He says in Romans 6, he says, Do you, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the master there is irrelevant. You might be a slave to someone's approval or a slave to painkillers or a slave to your cell phone or success. The master is irrelevant. The point is that you become the one who is mastered. You are the one being played when it started the other way around. And so what was once freedom becomes fetters or bondage to this desire. It's why Paul leans hard into this next slogan in verse 13. He says, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So your body's just a pleasure vessel. If you have an appetite, you have a desire, you need to satisfy it, you need to fulfill it. And it's like, well, why does he switch and talk about food? And it's because often in the ancient world, food and sex were paired together. They were considered these bodily appetites. And if you have the appetite, you've got to feed it. I think it's why Paul tells these uh, writes in another letter and he says of those who don't follow Jesus, their God is their stomach. Their God is their belly. In other words, their appetites. You're just following whatever feeling or desire you have. So what my body wants, my body gets. And so that is the line of thinking that Paul is trying to address. And I think that's the line of thinking that we're seeing the repercussions of all around us. And this comes really from the ancient world. This was a, a Plato, you know, a thought from Plato where it's like you've got this, these two different levels of existence. You've got a spiritual level and a physical, and the physical is really just keeping your spirit in a prison of sorts, and so you gotta, you gotta get out of that with all of your wisdom and all of your thinking. And we may not call it that today. It may not be spirit and body. In fact, some would argue today it's actually like your body and then your personhood, like those aren't the same thing, or humanity, And the body, and now those have been separated. And so yet God never makes this divide between a spiritual life and physical life. There is just life. That's why Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundant, have it to the full. And we go, okay, well, what life? Are you just talking about the spiritual life? And Jesus says, no, it's just life. It's this integrated whole of your mind, body, and spirit all of it together. And I believe Christianity does offer the most integrated approach to life that you could possibly live. That through Jesus, this life lived for the good of yourself and to the glory of God and for the good of others is most connected in and through Jesus Christ. And I wanna take a minute just to address some of the repercussions of trying to live as if these are separate. So some of you are around for the sexual revolution and liberation of the 1960s. Others studied it, whatever it may be. It was a novel idea in America. It was not in all of history. You can read the Bible and see that that's, that's true. Um, and so uh, if you want like a Cliff Notes version, I brought this up so you could get a look at it. It's called Live, This is Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And he really goes at and gives you a nice condensed version uh, a reader's digest version of what happened since the 60s in america and as a result of, you know, sexual practice thereafter. And so here's a sampling of what has happened. Sex was separated from marriage via birth control and legalized abortion. Then no-fault divorce made marriage into a contract instead of a covenant. Fast forward to hookup culture and Tinder where you swipe right for a good time and sex is now separated from romance or intimacy. It's just an appetite. From there, it's on to LGBTQIA revolution, which separates sex from the male-female binary. Then on to transgenderism, which separates gender from biology. And into polyamory, where two-person relationships aren't enough. Now you have multiples involved in the relationship. So that, that's just a sampling. That's just a sampling. But who is stopping to ask whether the fruit of the liberation is good? That's, I, that's the challenge. Is it good? Is it producing better people happier people even are we asking the right questions and looking at the consequences so here are some of the effects we see that happiness has been on the decline in america since the 1960s the trauma of divorce for children of all ages is tied to the rising number of people who struggle to develop intimate healthy relationships in adulthood the long-term effects of abortion on women's mental and physical health those who cohabitate before marriage are less likely to marry more likely to get divorced if they do and often develop long-term trust issues. The pandemic of pornography addiction as well as its content growing more violent and misogynistic. Sexual assault and abuse are getting worse, not better. And that includes rape culture being alive and well at our most enlightened institutions and universities. So there's more to say on all of it. Like you you could track the data, you could read the studies, it's there. Everyone knows it. But the main idea is this, that ideas have consequences. The ideas, the beliefs that you live by have consequences, for better or worse. And Paul is combating ideas that have momentum in his day and in our day. And so he's gonna bring into focus now, what I, this is where I think the turn happens, that's somewhat surprising, Like he doesn't start talking about unwanted pregnancy or sexually transmitted disease. He's actually gonna raise the view of sex in another way. Look at the rest of verse 13. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So sexual immorality, we talked about last week, pornaya, it means any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. So as plainly as possible, Paul says your body, your physical body is not meant for, it is not intended to be involved in any sort of sexual union or activity that is not within the confines of marriage. No matter if it feels good, no matter if you have certain feelings and you're allowed to explore those feelings, God's view of the body and sex is much higher. And if we're gonna have that same view, we've got to elevate the view of the body. And so he says, it's for fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, which means it's also in service to others. And the story of the gospel speaks to this. See, this is in verse 14, he brings in more of the gospel message. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and he will raise us also. So Paul brings the conversation back to the resurrection. He's going to spend all of chapter 15 talking about the resurrection because that is what matters. And so the reason that matters is because the body then is not just dust and ashes. It is not just physical. It carries spiritual, eternal implications. And so we could summarize it this way, that because your body has a divine beginning, which we would say is creation, and a divine ending, or really it's a continuing, which is resurrection, because it has the divine beginning, the divine continuing, the middle matters. What you do in between those moments of time matter because you will carry forward with that body. And so Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is telling everyone to think more highly about sex by thinking more highly about the body. This is why he says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So your body is created. Your body will be resurrected, but your body is a member. It is united with Jesus's resurrected body. Like we don't, I don't carry that awareness into most of my life. That where I go, there Jesus goes. And so all of our body is united to Jesus. This is what he's gonna talk about later in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you, so you've got communal and individual is a part of it. And that being true, Paul lays out like an absurd scenario in verse 15. This is one of the things that he does on a regular basis. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And most people would say that that shall I take, that take is actually not a strong enough word. It is more like shall I rip off and attach to something immoral, the member of Christ's body? He says, of course we wouldn't do that. If Christ himself would not be engaged in sexual immorality of any kind, then it is just as absurd that any disciple of Jesus would be doing the same thing. And so we're talking adultery, sexting, premarital, extramarital, sexual activity of any kind. Paul uses vivid language because he's trying to get us to see that any time we practice sexual immorality, we actually dehumanize the body. We make it less what God has intended for the body to be and for the body to do. And so Paul explains why, beginning in verse 16, why this is the case. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? And listen, prostitution is probably not a threat for, for many of us, but any, any culturally acceptable sexual practice, you could read that in here. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute or with pornography or with adultery or with sexting or whatever is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. And so Paul brings back in the Genesis 2 language of God's intent for marriage and for sex. One plus one Equals one. It is some of the most mysterious math in the world. And yet it comes from God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's the same thing. There's an interconnectedness that our physical our physicality cannot explain. This is how Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar, says it. Sex cannot be understood merely as a momentary act. So, like, I want it, I need it. That satisfies a transient natural urge, meaning it goes and follows you anywhere and everywhere you go. It's not this momentary act. In other words, sex is not just a body on a body. There's something deeper happening, something more mysterious happening in that union. There is oneness, God says. The the word united, it functionally means glued together or cemented. That is what it means, and from that, we realize and we know from our own experience that when you try to un something, you try to un it, you try to uncement it, there is probably going to be pain and brokenness as a result. And so it's why in my own life and in most of your lives and the lives of a lot of people that I've talked to for the last 18 years, the main regret that we have is often sexual. It's often something having to do with sex. Because it, it wears on our souls the way that some thing, other things just don't. And so God calls his people higher because of something deeper at play. And this is the something deeper in verse 17. He says, whoever is united, same verb, with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So you've got this argument from lesser to greater. That if two bodies joining together are one, how much more when you are united with the Lord himself. How much more when you share the spirit of God, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that now lives in you, which is where this is headed. There's something bigger at work. And that's what leads to Paul concluding the way he does. He he doesn't mess around when he says, look, here's the urging that I would have for you in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. This is present imperative, flee and you keep on fleeing. Run, forest, run when you see and know that this is what is tempting me. This is what is luring me. You get out, you go. And we really believe that God is faithful that anytime, we'll read 1 Corinthians 10, that when you have been tempted, God is faithful and will provide a way out. And oftentimes it is your little legs taking you away. And yet, instead of fleeing immorality, many of us flirt with immorality. How close can I get before I cross the line? That's why Proverbs, when it's talking about this very thing, says it's like we try to carry fire next to our chest thinking we're not gonna get burned. So Paul says flee. To the Ephesians, he says, don't even let there be a hint of sexual immorality. And nobody's gonna do this for you like we, we're always gonna try to help kids be wise and, and whatever, but nobody can do it for you. You've gotta want to do it and then you've gotta put the stuff in place. The, the guardrails, the boundaries. Like what's the, what's the no play zone for you? And so it's gonna be different things for different people. Like for me at a minimum, it means that every electronic device I have has some, some kind of accountability software on it that is gonna send a report to one of my friends is gonna say, here's what Patrick's looked at. And that is not weakness for me. That is wisdom because of a history with pornography. So I would be an idiot to not have accountability there. That would just be foolish. And so it's going to be different things for different people. I would say to teenagers and their parents, if there are phones, if there are iPads, what are the guardrails? What are they? Have you talked through them? What are the consequences if they're broken? Those are conversations you've got to have. Nobody else is going to have those. For a lot of us, it's probably what we watch, maybe digest from a Netflix or HBO Max. Like, are you being honest with yourself about how Game of Thrones affects your heart? It may be a real human person at work that is a temptation and there are ways to lessen interactions and encounters with that person in your office and you need to take action there. Um, I think of Sam Albury, he's a pastor in the UK who has struggled with same-sex attraction since he was a teenager. And his response, his boundary has been singleness and celibacy. I will not be in this relationship. I will not follow through with this. No matter what I feel, I really believe the story of Scripture. And I believe God is for me in the end. And then I may take some flack for this one, but can we talk about Hallmark for a second? Hallmark movies. I'm sorry. Sorry. I like them too. All right, full disclosure, I enjoy a good Hallmark. I never know how they're going to end, but I really enjoy them. gets me every time, but. but now here's what I'd say. Look, this is the, like, those guys aren't real. Their abs are. Okay, I get it. I get it, uh, but their persona's not. That's not real, and that town ain't real either. Stop looking for it, all right? But here's the question. If at the end of these movies, which are innocent in and of themselves, my goodness, they're, they're, they're comical sometimes, but if at the end of it you view less, of your husband or your spouse because of your comparison now with this other fake person that somebody wrote perfectly into a script and they've got a dietician and paid for trainers and all the things. And you're like, we got kids, is that good? <laughs> you know? So what do you do with that? Like just being wise with that. that. That's for all of us. Just what do I need to stay away from sexual immorality or fantasizing, whatever it is. In, in the rest of verse 18, Paul, says this in such a way that makes it feel one way and we need to talk about it because he says all other sins a person commits are outside the body but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body now this sounds like sexual sin is the worst sin possible like you can be gluttonous and greedy and a liar but if you commit sexual sin you're beyond hope but the word other is actually not there So that's an interpretive decision that the NIV translators make. It's not in other translations. In fact, what a lot of scholars think is happening is that this is another slogan that the Corinthians are living by. They're basically in effect, and you can see it. They're saying, well, sin, it's just, that's outside of the body. It's not a big deal. The body's gonna perish anyways. And Paul is the one going, you don't understand. You're actually sinning against your body. There's a difference. There's something unique about the way sexual sin happens because all of the other sins, you're you're taking something in, whether that be alcohol or drugs or whatever, or addiction to something like, but your body's all you need to commit sexual sin. That's it. And so he's saying there's something happening in this kind of relationship that is just different. And again, I think that's why it weighs on our souls differently than other things. And so that's why Paul leads, he finishes, excuse me, leads and finishes with this in verse 19. This is his strongest argument. He says, do you not know that your bodies, your physical bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received, that's the word gifted, from God. Because your your body is a temple. And this is not like the generic word for temple. This is like the Jewish temple, holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. If you're united with Christ, this is you. The spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you and wherever you go, there he goes, which is humbling and empowering and terrifying because where have we been even some of maybe this last week, right? And so Paul's trying to raise our view here that wherever we go, we're taking Christ with us, the spirit with us, the father with us. And so he doubles down in the rest of verse 19. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. My body, my choice. You're not your own, male or female. You're not your own. Thy body. It's God's body. Because you were bought. That is a done, past, one-time act is the language there that because of the death of Jesus Christ, you have been purchased. You you have been redeemed from so many things and you've been redeemed for so many other things. And Part of me wonders if this isn't a little bit tongue in cheek on Paul's part. Like he's not going, hey, you remember how you're used to paying for sex with prostitutes? Well, guess what God has done for you? He has bought you from all of that darkness and from all of the death that comes with it through the blood of Jesus. So, which is why it doesn't matter if you sinned 20 years ago, 20 minutes ago, last night, there is nothing you've done that God cannot redeem or turn beautiful in some way, shape, or form. That is the power of the gospel. So Paul says, because of who you are, because of whose you are, the most logical action is this, in verse 20, therefore, honor God, glorify God, make much of God with your bodies, with how you use it, with how you treat it, with what you do with it with someone else. Honor God, point to the goodness and beauty and creativity of God. And it's important, again, to just remind ourselves, it's not, you know, Paul's language is not from God, okay, now, make sure you get yourself clean and you're not immoral and you don't do anything wrong, and then you'll get the Holy Spirit. No, you've got the Holy Spirit. And now, because of that, honor God with what you've been given This brings us back to what we said last week, and I'll continue to see it through the rest of the letter, that your identity drives your activity. Who you are and whose you are determines what you do and what you won't do. And so just to recap, who are you in Christ Jesus? And this is true. Like if you have given your life over to Jesus Christ, what I'm gonna say is true of you. If you have not, there's no reason it can't be true of you. That can change with a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ while I'm still talking. But this is what is true. That you are created, that in all of God's creation, he makes everything in the world, he looks at humans, the human body, and says, very good. We really outdid ourselves here, didn't we? Very good, beautiful. So you are created, you are designed, you are intentional and purposeful. And then you're purchased, you're purchased by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You're redeemed from sin and slavery to death. And you're redeemed for being able to live in righteousness and love and joy and peace for the good of yourself, the good of others, and the glory of God. And that you're indwelled by the spirit, divine power lives in you, takes residence in you and that you will be resurrected. That in these very bodies, we will be raised from death to walk with our God forever. And I know some of us are like, can we talk about the body? Like, what's that gonna be? What's it gonna look like? That's, again, that's the end of 1 Corinthians. Because that is where this all hinges. Is there a resurrection? And if those things are true, if you are created and you are purchased, you are indwelled by the Spirit and you will be resurrected, what then is there left for us to do but honor God with our bodies? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give thanks to you for your creativity, the fact that you made our bodies, that you made the world the way you did with beauty and splendor. not It's not dull, it's not boring And Lord, I pray for those in the room, God, myself included, whose life had been marked by sexual brokenness or sin. God, I pray that we would each see your redemptive work at hand, that you make beautiful things out of the ashes of our lives, that you restore, that you redeem. And God, going forth, may we have a higher view and just think about the fact that wherever we go, there you are. You are leading us. You are guiding us. That you're for us. That if you clothe the lilies and you feed the sparrows, how much more are you for us? Just as we reflect, as we sing, as we hear the truths of your song, God, that rooted in the gospel rooted in the death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the life that he lived is hope that no matter what we've done, that no matter what has been done to us, you are there. You're in our darkest day. You're in the brightest of moments. And you call us forth to walk with you in resurrected life. And I pray that everyone would know what that feels like and experience it. We give this time to you, Holy Spirit, to do the work that you do. In Christ's name, amen.